This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Andrew, what does utopia mean to you? Well, I know that you can't spell fruitopia without utopia. I was wondering if you were going to bring up the hit 90s beverage, Fruitopia. And I love those bottles of fruity drink. Yeah. Are they gone? Did they disappear? Yeah, We all drink seltzer now in the year 2018, so I think... I think Fruitopia must be gone. This is not a beverage podcast. This is a book podcast. But uh, we're. <laughs> what I think. I think utopias are better than dystopias, I guess. But often things that appear to be utopias are actually dystopias now. So thanks, Black Mirror, for just ruining that for everybody. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a little bit more about it as we go this week. So each week, one of us reads a book. Uh, by an author, because that's where books come from, and then we talk uh-huh. about the book and the author. Uh, for you, the listener, and for ourselves, the podcasters, um, this week, Andrew read what? I read The Dispossessed, Unambiguous Utopia by Ursula K. Le Guin. Rest in peace, Ursula. We lost you this past week on yeah, January 22nd. The, it was kind of sad. This, this is the first time we've done a show in such proximity to an author passing away. And it's not, we didn't plan it No, like that. And we we wouldn't, I don't think. Mm-mm. I don't think we would have, no. Because we, yeah, we program stuff out at least a month or two in advance these days. And so I've been planning to read this book since November or December. And then, yeah, on January 22nd, 2018. Yeah, that's a real happened. shame. Yeah, uh, it really is. So we will talk a little bit about her as an author, about where this book came from. And then Andrew's going to fill in the deets on what the dispossessed <sighs> and ambiguous utopia is actually about. Um, uh, but let's say up front that we will probably not. We will we'll not spend the whole hour on like Le Guin's career, which we probably could and should, uh, if this were a different, differently formatted show. So, you know, if you don't know who we're talking about, you should go do some more reading after this podcast is over. So, what, like, how much exposure? And and I know we we talked a little bit about Le Guin in a short story episode we did like a long time ago, where you read what the ones who walk away. From Omelas. From Omelas, yeah. That is the only Le Guin that I have okay. read, which is a yeah, big Yeah, I shame. have read two or three of the Earthsea books. Oh, sure. It's been, a, it's been a long time. Like It's probably been close to 10 years at this point. And that, and is, that is something I would like to do for the show at some point, because those yeah, books sound really interesting. I've only read them. I've only read the ones that I read uh, one time, but yeah, they were neat. And it's been interesting. As I recall, that's my um, review. It's neat, been neat <laughs> they're neat books. Uh, it's been interesting seeing the responses to her passing in the last week, just because um, as an author that I'm not super familiar with, it is always educational to see how meaningful her work has been to a bunch of people and a bunch of people whose work I respect also. And then you, when I'm researching her work, as we'll talk about today, you start to see like where what she was doing in sci-fi and fantasy has now informed another generation of creators and and authors and stuff so yeah um, i mean there were there were tons of people like pretty much every everyone who's ever written anything that's touched sci-fi or fantasy who had who maintains an active social media presence yes something to say (laughs) true sure past week um so this book also i will say was recommended to us by our patreon supporter rebecca thank you rebecca uh, for making us read this book, uh, which we should have read even without you making us. <laughs> for making us do it. Um, so Le Guin was born in 1929. Um, she is a multiple Nebula and Hugo Award winner. Uh, she actually was the first person to do so for back-to-back books, I think, um, for The Left Hand of Darkness, is that what it's called? And uh-huh. The Dispossessed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, she's also and she's a, also like just notably just an undercurrent for all of this as she is one of the very few women who are doing any of this stuff. True. In, also true in sci-fi genre stuff, especially at the at the time in the sixties uh, and seventies. Correct. Um, she received a National Book Award medal for her entire career, which she accepted on behalf of her fellow science fiction and fantasy writers, who she said, quote, had been excluded from literature for so long. And that's a theme that we've danced around a number of times on our show. Um, yeah, just everybody thinking they too fancy for certain <laughs> kinds of fiction yeah. and slowly becoming disabused of those notions over time. It's true. Uh, her first story was written at the age of nine. She submitted her first one for publication at the age of 11. She was a Fulbright scholar in France where she met her husband, Charles, and then they moved back to the U.S. and eventually settled in Portland, had a couple of kids. Um, she was a Taoist. Uh, or I think in an interview she said that her work is informed by Taoist thought. Um, and she even did a translation uh, of Lao Tzu's work that she also wouldn't call a translation because she doesn't speak Chinese. So she like used a bunch of versions of it and a transliteration and kind of combined it. Um, I thought this was neat. She said she discovered him while she was a teenager, which she thinks is the best time to read a writer like him. Because uh, he's a bit of an anarchist. Here's a good quote. Rule a large country the way you cook a small fish. Very lightly. It's a good <laughs> good way to think about being in power. Sure, I guess. <laughs> uh, she wrote five novels in the 1950s, and all of them were rejected. Uh, and I think she kind of broke in writing short stories. And some of them would later get published, but... Um, she she broke in writing short stories, and she said that she'd written two of them that got published back-to-back. One was set in a fictional country in Central Europe. She made up called Orsinia, and then one was a short story, fantasy story called April in Paris, and the fantasy magazine paid. So she thinks that might be why she gravitated towards fantasy writing. What is it with American fiction creators and just <laughs> making up little European countries? I don't know, man. Like I'm I mean I always go back to Genovia, that classic example from <laughs> uh The Princess Diaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like do they just assume that most Americans will not know that there's not just a hundred little countries crammed in there all around? Yeah, it also allows us to make up I I don't know I can't speak. I guess to... it allows us to make make it be European without offending any specific yeah culture. Sure. <laughs> um, she has been called a writer of quote soft science fiction versus hard science fiction. I don't know as those labels are useful to anybody except the people who made them up. But if you maybe want like a primer, there's like a sense where. Uh, She's writing from like anthropological points of view and sociological points of view. Hard science fiction supposedly being like rooted in the hard science, science, yes, Yes. and then soft being Um, not that. Which I do just want to share a final paragraph. So in the New York Times uh, review of books, in the review for the dispossessed, there's like a couple paragraphs at the end where they review some other books. And one is uh, about a Larry Niven book, I think, called Tales of Known Space. I don't want to offend anybody, but the one Larry Niven book I've ever read, I did not like. (laughs) Well, this reviewer, uh, whose name was Gerald Jonas, which is just two names back to back, he said um, that in hard science stories, there's a plot with a hero whose survival depends on the proper use of some future mechanical device. After you describe it, the hero must fix it quickly or die. (laughs) Um, the reader has no chance whatsoever of solving the puzzle because the solution usually depends on some quirk of futuristic science that the author made up in the first place. The real puzzle is why these stories are so popular. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was exactly my reaction to Larry Niven. So, and there's certainly good examples of that. And he says like, if you, if you like this work, you enjoy Larry Niven outsiders need not apply. Uh, Le Guin is not doing that type of work. She is. Um, as she has said, science fiction is a thought experiment where you get to imagine a part of reality and then imagine the consequences if you change certain parts of that reality um, and go from there. It contemplates possible futures. Writers may find the future appealing precisely because it can't be known, a black box where anything at all can be said to happen without fear of contradiction from a native. The future is a safe, sterile laboratory for trying out ideas in, a means of thinking about reality, 
a method. And well, then to to dive even further into that, you know, because the dispossessed is is giving us this quote unquote ambiguous utopia, which that phrase comes from basically like a back of the book yep. sort of description of it, and then was shortened down to um, an ambiguous utopia, which has become an, a more or less official subtitle in most recent printings of the book. Correct. Um, but there's a there's a bit in the back of the edition I read, um, a study guide to the dispossessed by Paul Bryans, which again is just two names <laughs> slammed together. Um, he says um, he's he's talking about how this like utopian novels had sort of fallen out of favor mm. following the you know the two world wars sure. and maybe a general dimming of everybody's. <laughs> everybody's opinions of of mankind like taken as a whole but Le Guin was was a writer who jumped back in and um and made a utopia that was not it was not unattainable like it it is a flawed utopia whereas other utopias like a common criticism is just like oh this is unrealistic this yeah yeah happen. like this is a utopia that takes human nature into account um but uh, Brian's writes, it's important to understand that one of the main functions of utopia since Plato and Thomas More has been to function as a critique of existing society, providing a kind of benchmark against which the flaws of real cultures can be more clearly revealed. Their proposals for reform have not always been seriously meant. So that that dovetails well with what Le Guin is using science fiction for, I think. Sure. Um, it did start, The Dispossessed started as a short story. Uh, that which she which she said was bad was very bad, <laughs> partly um, because she didn't understand the concepts. Like this book has a lot to do with anarchy and capitalism and like different forms of government and all kinds of different stuff. So yeah, she just she said that she didn't understand it well enough to to do it justice in a short story until later. But she did come back to this abortive short story and find within it an intact protagonist that she could use for the full novel. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then we should also mention, I just want to mention this uh, commencement address she gave in 1983 at Mills College, which was the first women's college west of the Rockies. It's uh, referred to as the left-handed commencement address, which you can, I think is a reference to the left hand of darkness. Um, you can find it on her website. But it's just a cool text for learning more about Le Guin as a feminist writer, she's gotten a lot of praise for and some flack for, like just writing stories that have like male protagonists, which she will cop to as frustrations with the limitations of the genre. Um, she, she also has said that she wants to get into an alien mind, and she can think of no other way to do that, or no better way to do that than to write <laughs> from the perspective of a man. That's that's good. <laughs> Um, there's just some good quotes in this speech that, you know, she's trying to reject the traditional, like, go out and conquer the world commencement speech because she sees that as being explicitly a product of the male-dominated world. So what she says is, what if I said what I hope for you is first, if, only if, if you want kids, I hope you have them, not hordes of them, a couple, enough. I hope they're beautiful. I hope you and they have enough to eat and a place to be warm and clean in and friends and work you like doing. It's just like if I was getting a degree and someone just told me that like they hoped I was okay, that would feel kind of nice. That's what most of us are getting a degree for anyway. Like I don't I don't think everyone who gets a degree is like I'm going to be president. I'm going to run this yeah, but run this they, into the ground. But then they pay a celebrity or someone who's like Worked real hard to get up and tell you to to take over the world and like, go be yeah, president. Like Nate Silver or somebody. Yeah, like Nate, Nate, Silver. Nate Silver is giving the Kenyon College commencement. Not is it commencement? Yeah, he's giving the commencement address. The commencement I hope it's just charts year. the whole time. I hope he's like, yes, yeah, statistically, like eighty percent of you are gonna burn out and fail. I hope he's just really forty percent really of you have stuff. a have a good shot at being president, and then mm -hmm. everyone will just boom off the stage. Forty percent is like high. It's I know, <laughs> but maybe not as high as it sounds like it is. Yeah, I think he's he would be game for this conversation. Um, we should take a quick break, but then I want to set the table for where the dispossessed falls in what is called the Hainer cycle, and then I want to hear more about this book, Andrew. All right. Craig. Andrew. 
Overdue this week, our podcast that we do is supported by Cereal Box. What Cereal Box, you might be asking, Andrew? Well, you may know it better as the HBO of reading, which Ah. is how it is referred to by National Public Radio. That's cool. It brings you gripping stories written by best-selling and award-winning teams of writers, like in a TV show's writer's room. Wait, you asked me what cereal box was, but you knew all along. I was asking a rhetorical question because I had (laughs) the answers. There are new episodes released every week. You can read or listen to them at no extra cost. And the Serial Box app lets you switch from listening to reading with just a click. Uh, there's a new series called Fice, False Idols coming, excuse me, which is about an FBI linguist uh, working undercover in the Middle East. I'm just l- taking a look at SerialBox.com. There's also a series coming called 1776, The World Turned Upside Down. There's a series called The Fisher of Bones, which sounds amazing. (laughs) Which I assume is about the TV show Bones. Yeah, there's a couple others called uh, Geek Actually, which seems to be some sort of teen. uh, It's a sexy genre-busting serial that's about friendship, feminism, and fandom. That sounds good. But yeah, they put out all these stories in episode form, so you get a new one every week. You listen. Don't they say that most episodes take like 40 minutes to listen to? Yeah, about that much. So you get it's just like getting a new chapter of a little book every week. And you, overdue listeners, can get a discount on any first season of a cereal box series. Head to cerealbox.com and enter the promo code overdue18. That's S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X dot com. And the code is overdue eighteen. So Andrew. So- Oh, you go first. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you how you wanted to approach the, the rest of the thing, but I assume you're going to just ask me a question, and then I'll go from there. Well, so. I wanted to know a little bit, just a little bit, about where the dispossessed fits into what is referred to as the Hainish Cycle. All right. So the Hainish Cycle is a series of six novels and a bunch of novellas and short stories um, the novels were written mostly in the late 60s and, and early to mid 70s. Sure. Um, though, you know, short stories and stuff continue to come out for a long time after that. Um, and it, it all like all the books are tied together by this uh, by a focus on um, this series of like it's it's just a bunch of planets settled by humans or human like people like they all have a common ancestry but they've also all evolved to be like a little distinct so the people who you spend most of your time with in the dispossessed are like humans but hairier than normal sounds good to me yeah (laughs) and the folks in Um, the left hand of darkness that's the book where folks are ambisexual right where she i think that's the one where she said she quote eliminated gender to find out what was left (laughs) From cool. a like narrative perspective, yeah, I mean all the all the people in this book are sexually like pretty up for whatever. Like they they know whether they are mostly heterosexual, sexual, or mostly homosexual, but they seem to exist on a spectrum of sexuality, which is pretty neat for a book that came out in 1974. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's not, it's not a thing that the book like spends a ton of time on. It's just like a, a thing that's commented on. In, in passing mm-hmm. but yeah um so Le Guin actually has sort of distanced herself from this like heinous cycle label like she says um the thing is they aren't a cycle or a saga they do not form a coherent history there are some clear connections among them but also some extremely murky ones um which is th- for for a reader, I think the thing to take away from that is you don't need to read these in order. These are like even as serialized as the Earthsea stuff is. This is this is not. So, um, the Dispossessed is the last of the novels to come out, but chronologically, it's the first. Okay. Um. So it, it deals with the invention of a of the theory, like the mathematical and physics-based theory behind this thing called the Ansible, which is a device that allows for more or less real-time communication between worlds that are many light years apart. Yes, and she is credited with like introducing this into science fiction. And sure. I think other, other authors have used this device and named it as such, 
Um, mm-hmm. But she is the one who t- who gets the credit deservedly. Yeah. So so this is about the guy who invents the theory behind the the Ansible and his his adventures. Okay. So there are these two conflicting schools of schools of thought about how time works. One is called sequentialism, which says, you know, the time is a straight line and, you know, there are consequences for actions and and whatever. Boring. And then yeah, boring. And then there's another theory called uh, simultaneity. Sure. Which is that time like time is circular, like everything is kind of taking place at the same time in a way. Arrival. And yeah. you can navigate like you can move through time fluidly if you know how. So presuming that works, you can manipulate that to create the ansible. Yeah, and I mean, and the science behind all this stuff is is sufficiently vague. It, it turns out that there are certain elements of of both things that are true. Yep. Like there's a um, there's this thought, there's this anecdote early in the book where someone says, if you throw like if you throw a rock at a tree, there is a certain interval of time that's going to pass for the rock to to traverse the space like halfway between itself and the tree. So you throw the rock and then it goes halfway and then it goes halfway between that and halfway between that. Oh yeah. And halfway between Mm -hmm. that. And according to that, like the rock would never actually hit the tree. Yeah. This is Zeno's paradox. Yeah. Because there would never ever be a, a unit of time so small that it couldn't be divided in half, I guess. Yes. Correct. But we also know that the rock does hit the tree. Yes. And so that's the way those ideas like compete. Okay. That's but a, that's I mean the cool end the end result the ideas. end result is just like an interstellar walkie-talkie yeah. so it's not like super <laughs> important. Like the the motivation behind some characters in the in the book is to use this theory to develop not just like faster than light communication but faster than light travel. Oh, okay. And they and they also want to, you know, use it for they want to have it and not let others have it. And mm. in so doing, like give themselves like a tactical advantage. Because definitely all the all the worlds in this like Hanish cycle don't coexist peacefully with each other necessarily. Sure. So where where um, do we exist in this book? What are what are what is this ambiguous utopia? Um, so there are two planets. Uh they're in the pl- a place called Tau Seti. Like okay. is that um, like the system or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um uh the two planets, uh Anaris and Eurus. Sure. Um and eat they both kind of orbit each other and eat the people living on each planet call the other planet the moon. Cool. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> but uh Eurus is is much more Earth like, I think. Like it's the description of it the descriptions of it are recognizably earth like. Like there are a lot of different biomes and there's a lot of weather and and a lot of animal life and vegetation and all this stuff and then anaris while it is you know there's plant life and it's inhabitable it's not it's not the moon but if you imagine a sort of lightly terraformed moon i don't think you'd be too far off it is not easy going on anaris yeah it's a little it's drier it's colder there's there are almost no land animals Though there are like plants, so off the bat, it sounds like I want to live on Eurus, right? Yeah. Well, so the deal was um, a little less than two hundred years ago, there was this revolution on Eurus where uh, these people led by led by is not quite the right word, sort of sparked by the the teachings and speeches of this woman named Odo. Uh, these people are called Odonians. Sure. Um. They they start this revolution and the end like in the end they decide they are going to separate and go and live on Anaris, which which at that point there's like a mining colony on it because it's it's rich in ore, even if it's you know, animal and plant life isn't great. Okay. Um so they go to live on Anaris, which is mostly uninhabited, and they set up a treaty where nobody from Eurus you know, aside from the the people who initially go, is, is allowed, allowed to okay. come to Anaris. Aside from like very very basic communication and and trade, huh? 
what do they believe or what are their principles so the odonians they so one they speak this um like constructed language that is not esperanto but if you're thinking esperanto that's the way okay they're going is it it's purely it it is constructed with a linguist's understanding of language and so you don't have any of the weird exceptions to rules and things that crop up in english and other romance languages that sure, have been sure. cobbled together over many many hundreds of years um and it is uh anarchist insofar as there is no like centralized government okay and it's socialist insofar as Everybody is is provided for and everybody is sort of collectively working for the good of everyone. How many people are there, though? It's you don't ever get a number, really. Okay. Um, but it's but it's enough that there are, you know, multiple cities and towns, and then there are people who just go off and live on their own because they're free to. Like you are encouraged to contribute to the welfare of everybody, but you don't necessarily have to, which is one of the tensions that she's she explores. Le Guin explores a little bit. Yeah, because I'm not a expert on anarchy, but from the '90s, I learned it's a lot of smashing stuff and doing whatever you want. No, this isn't the. <laughs> this is not the like burning dumpsters and spray painting the letter A on things kind of anarchy. Okay, like this is not drawing A on your trapper keeper in whiteout anarchy. This that's exact. I can't. I I have a hard time hearing the word anarchy without thinking those exact. Not things. picturing yeah, that right. a with the circle. <laughs> no, it's it's anarchy in that there are not politicians. There are not elected officials. Like there are some. Um, are there rules? Like organizations and and bodies that exist to, but but only to like distribute labor and, and attend to other like basic survival things because people do have to work together collectively and you need to have somebody to um to uh plan that i guess so you're not doing having a bunch of wasted effort or whatever but like even the people who serve within that centralized body like they are assigned it they you can only do it for a limited time like in theory they've accounted for this idea that power exists to um amass more power yeah so they have aggressively tried to to uh prevent a system of haves and have-nots yes to the to the point where in in the language that they speak like first person possessive pronouns are used mostly by like children who don't know any better like you you're huh. you're supposed to say you can say to someone, you can share the thing that I use instead of here, use my thing. Oh, like you don't own anything. Yeah, like people, can, you, you can go and if you need a chair, you just like go get a chair. If you need a blanket, go get a blanket. But people are not encouraged to, like it's it's not outlawed because there aren't laws because you, oh you get rid of laws and then people are better able, in theory, people are better able to just look at an action and say, oh, that is good or bad. And so we should or shouldn't do it. Okay, um, I feel like a little bit on, like I'm out on a on a tightrope here with how well this is gonna go. Like for as it's, a group it's of like, people, it's it's interesting because it's simultaneously a pretty Spartan existence. Like people don't have a lot of stuff; they just don't. Yeah, that, sure. That, that runs counter to how the society works, but also people don't want for basic things. Like you, you can get. You could go and you get your two meals a day, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of who you are. There's a place where they're they're talking about the function of a society and um and also, you know, the nature of, of human suffering and stuff. Oh, good. <laughs> um, suffering is the condition on which we live. And when it comes, you know it. You know it as the truth. Of course, it's right to cure diseases, to prevent hunger and injustice, as the social organism does. But no society can change the nature of existence. We can't prevent suffering. This pain and that pain, yes, but not pain uh, with a capital P. Um, a society can only relieve social suffering, unnecessary suffering. The rest remains the root, the reality. So this is about a utopia that is not that is not perfect. It's just about eliminating unnecessary suffering, which I think you and I can both agree that 
our like our American society still has plenty of. Yes. For, so, for you know, for various reasons, because things are complicated. Yes. Um, I was re- looking up a little bit on just who she cited as inspirations for this. So she uh, has cited guys named Peter Kropotkin and Paul Goodman as both nonviolent anarchist writers. And so eventually I want to make sure we talk about like conflict and violence in this book as it does yep. or does not exist. Uh-huh. Um, and this idea that like if we had enough goods, then everyone could just take what they need from like the social product, whatever that is. Um, and you could maybe like abolish money. I think that's what Kropotkin was saying. And then she also based some of the ideas in the book on Murray Bookchin's uh, post-scarcity anarchism, which is this idea that if we have the means to make what we need to live, which is a which is like getting rid of what you're saying is just like the normal pain of human existence, um, then we wouldn't need to spend any inform- any like time or energy on anything else. Like and and capital would not be necessary for liberation because then you could just use all the tools for like making sure everybody's cool. Yeah, and and like there are all kinds of different examples of different societies in this book and there are, you know, there there are to varying degrees like good and bad things about all of them. Like, sure. like the the planet Earth exists in this book. Yeah. But yeah. it is a far future version of the planet Earth where we have stripped the planet bare of all resources and a population of around 500,000 people survives strictly because there is very, very, very strict centralized control over everything from like birth rate to, you know, consumption levels to like only by a very strong central government as opposed to no central government can you make life on this planet possible at all. Are you saying that the Hain- that Wally takes place in the Hainer cycle? Sure. <laughs> Just double checking. <laughs> yes, by and large completely ruined earth. I do find it interesting that this utopia that she's presenting, this ambiguous utopia, uh, cuz I want to talk about the other planet a little bit. It comes from an existing place. Like a lot of times when you encounter a utopia in fiction, you know, going back even to Thomas More's original use of utopia, it's a it's a place that just exists. Like you don't you don't see its origin story or or whatever unless you're gonna like unlock the hidden dystopia inside. <laughs> like mm-hmm. usually it's just a why is this magical place here? And here's how magical it is. So No, it's just like this he a habitable, a not great but habitable planet happened to exist within traveling distance, and all the people on this planet who rebelled against capitalism and viewed it as an inherently corrupt and like patriarchal system, which hey, heck, capitalism, uh, <laughs> could go to this other planet and get a more or less fresh start. So, is. I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here, but is Eurus that bad? Or correction, how bad is it there for folks? Okay, so uh, the guy who is making this technology, like the theory behind the Ansible, which he's working on throughout the whole book. Does he have a name? Sh- What's his name? His name is, his name is Shavek. Shavek, okay. And the book is telling the beginning of like the beginning of his life story and then not the end, but like the latest part of his life story in alternating chapters. So it starts pretty much in the middle with adult Shavek leaving Anaris for Eurus. Oh, okay. And he's the only person from Anaris who has gone back. Was he because, born on Anaris? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anaris has been populated years, for yes, around 170 okay. years at this point. And, like sadly enough, Odo herself never actually made it to Anaris. Like she died before she could see this oh. society that she that she pitched, like set into motion. Okay. And then the chapter after that is Shavek's like childhood. Oh, okay. And so the and and his and then after that, you know, following that, his life on Anaris and the way all these different ideas come into his head and all these people that he know. And so by the end of the book, the the Anaris chapters have caught up with the beginning of the book. Oh, okay. Whereas the the Eurus chapters are now chronologically and the end the end of the book. If that do makes they sense. want? They don't want him to go. 
Do they? They they don't want him to go. But so so here's one of the things, and we'll talk about Uris, I promise, soon. But okay, Anaris is 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 more different from our current reality, <laughs> and so there's just more to to discuss with it. I think. Sure. Um, but there is so so. Shivek, as he grows up and starts dabbling in this branch of like experimental physics, begins to butt up against the fact that, hey, there is actually like a centralized power structure on Inari's. It's not government and like politics as you would think of it traditionally, mm. but it is all about um it's all about like public opinion. It's all about norms. It's all about what is viewed as acceptable. So to to give you a, a couple of of examples, there's a physicist who gets in Shivek's way by refusing to like endorse his work, and because this physicist has been around for like a couple of decades already and has has an established reputation, the the people who handle publishing things are just, you know, they're just not going to give the, the a guy who can't get this other physicist a stamp of approval the time of day. And Shivek is is free to try and publish it himself because it's a free society and he can do whatever he wants. But realistically, you know, that it's hard to it's hard to do that. Like there's a big multi-year drought on um on an hour an Aries mm. for a few years, like seven or eight years. And, you know, it's, it's hard to come by paper. Like the, the it's again, I, I want to call it government, but the book doesn't present it as government, the central like labor division that makes sure people are doing what they need to do to make the planet survive. Mm. Like they are stepping in and, and taking more control because, Things are getting scarce. Stop writing the, comic strips. We need right, that for toilet paper. Exactly. Like, okay. and the, like the regions that do have stuff, like there needs to be more people getting the food and, and basics to the regions that don't have stuff. And and um, whoever is playing this game of SimCity is like stepping in and right. adjusting some sliders. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, Shavek is is theoretically free to try and publish his work himself, but realistically, it's not going to happen. Um, like people are free to refuse work assignments from the central labor division, but there's a really strong stigma associated with, you know, shirking your duty and not contributing to this community because every you know everything is communal, and I think a pretty common critique of the sort of uh socialist model is you know when it's when it's everyone's job it's no one's job and it encourages people to just shirk or do the bare minimum sure and so everybody's really conscious of that and trying to fight that and so realistically almost nobody refuses work assignments and the people who do get their own like little sort of derogatory label and they're not really as welcome within the confines of, of polite Anari's society, I guess. Yeah, it's so what you're kind of describing is a, is an institutionalized culture that emerges from various needs and mores. Uh and yeah, it takes the place of a of a an objective system or institution. Yeah, it's this, it's this combination of public opinion norms and peer pressure combined with the slow buildup of bureaucracy that just naturally happens when emergencies and crises come up yeah and something you were talking when you were talking about the the physics guy that shavek needed to like get his stuff published you mentioned earlier you don't own things right like you don't own a handkerchief or a chair right but you certainly still own your actions like they are still attributable to you yeah and you and you own your ideas and so what what shavek is coming up against both in this older physicist's work and in his own work is like he does like he could put both their names on it and get the ideas out there which he does eventually do but it really irks him to not get credit and what is what is credit but like a a possession that you're trying to to yeah so yeah it's huh does the book i don't think Le Guin would present it this way so i don't i don't necessarily know but like i could see uh, a go-go 80s businessman coming in 
and you know adjusting <laughs> bonitis adjusting his tie and saying that if if only they had the the market then this would sort out these issues like well and so that that is why they are like part of this treaty is like no one from Eurus can come up here because you know even if you have a few people like there there's a bit in the book toward the end where some people from Eurus are saying hey we're Adonians too and stuff on Eurus like sucks for us. Can we come up to Anaris and live with you guys? And the like the hearing where they're all discussing this, people are saying, "Oh, right now you it's like half a dozen people who claim to be Adonians, but what comes after that? And you know who is what are their actual motivations, and how can we actually trust them?" So it's a big reason why there is no. Um, communication between like th- there's no more immigration I guess hmm. between Eurus and Inaris and even though there's nothing in this treaty that says people can leave Inaris and go like people can't leave Inaris and go back to Eurus the way that everyone is interpreting these things now like anyone who left and tried to come back would not be welcome either huh okay because it's like anyone coming from Eurus is not welcome up here. So what causes uh, Shavek to go? Like, why does he want to go? So he's, you know, he's got this idea that I think he realizes is going to lead to um, interplanetary communication or faster interplanetary travel. And he just wants to get the idea out there. Mm. And he's running up against all this opposition on Anaris. Like that's just because people want to do stuff the way they've they've done it. And it's easier to go along to get along than it is to to make a bunch of trouble. So he and some friends and his not wife but partner, like there is monogamy on this. Okay, there's still monogamy. Okay. Planet, even though like it's it's not there's no guarantee that you'll be posted to the same job as your partner. And if you don't want to do that, it's fine. Like even <laughs> child rearing is super communal and like, you're not, you're people don't say, Oh, my mother. Oh, sure. Necessarily. They're just like generalized words that mean mother and father that can apply to a lot of people. Okay. Um, but anyway, they, they start this little society because they are, they're realizing that they live in this an anarchist society that is not tolerant of anarchists it's almost like not, it's almost wrapped around it is a conservative anarchism it's yeah or like, like an an anarchism that is that is sliding into something else sure because sure. of necessity and inertia and and so in that way i think i think Le Guin is saying you know you, you should never be coasting on on this stuff. Like you should always be actively thinking about your ideas and your ideology and watching for for backsliding and watching for for things you don't like, like seeping into your system and corrupting it. You know? Oh, okay. Okay. Um but Shavek comes to think that the only way he's gonna get these ideas out at all is to go to Eurus. And also if he's down there on Eurus, like why can't he try and advocate for better relations and and he and and there's a there are bits earlier in the book where where he's saying you know if their society was truly as bad and as as corrupt as we are as we are taught that it was then how is it still existing like certainly something must still be working at some level for for them to still exist at all okay and so saying, you know, things on things on Eurus can't be as bad as as we are taught that they are. Like the the proprietarians, as as the people on Anaris refer to the people. That's on a Eurus. good dig. That's a good. I ooh. Well, and it's a super and it's a super big insult to call somebody a proprietarian. Oh no! Like at, like at one point, Shavek has like this orange blanket, and some guy comes into his apartment. And it's like orange. Like no, there's no reason for anything to be colored orange. And the fact that you have this specific blanket is egoist and proprietarian and it's garbage and you should stop it. Oh, gosh. Does that wait? Because that's a like if you have a preference for a thing, is that problematic? Well, because if you have a preference for a thing, then you are you are trying to you're owning a thing, right? If if you're like it. So if you. 
What you need is a blanket to keep warm. <laughs> okay. But if you have like a Super Mario blanket that you really like and you prefer it to the exclusion of other blankets, then what you're trying to do really is just like own that. You're sort of expressing ownership over it. You're saying like, I, I want this specific blanket for no good practical reason. Oh, sure. But I want it badly enough that I'm going to prefer it to others, and so that sort of implies ownership. What if I refused to shower, because I can do whatever I want, and I made the Super Mario blanket kind of stinky so no one else would want it? (laughs) Have I won? Theoretically, you could just give it back, and they could clean it, and then give it to somebody else who needed it, but... Mm. I don't I, I don't think mm. I don't think your your idea of making everything you own so stinky and bad <laughs> that nobody else wants it. I don't think that's a good idea. Okay. I don't think it's going to fly. Okay. Because of peer pressure and you would be shunned. Sure. So he's so, going to go, he's going to find out if the world outside is as as bad as everyone says right. it is. So Chevette goes back to Eurus and he is welcomed pretty effusively by all the scientists and whatever in in this world and he's shown around. And there's he goes like they show him all the stuff and they go to this marketplace and he refers to it as a nightmare because there are all these people just like selling stuff. But none of the people who made it are there. And you have all these options like to no particular end. Oh, gosh. And he really does not. He does not like it. Um, But he also, you know, he, he simultaneously is feeling a little um estranged from. Anari, so he's you know he's kind of in this this weird in between place, and he's trying to make it work. So he's you know he's he's doing work at this university, and he is surrounded by these by these professors and other like upper crust people. And from the start, he's sort of aware that maybe not everything is is totally on the level with everybody. Like maybe mm. people aren't being super honest about like opening up communication between Eurus and Anari is like, it's not a purely like diplomatic thing. And he picks up pretty quickly that the people who have brought him here expect him to finish his work. And in so doing, give Eurus this technology before anybody else can get it. Yeah, of course. But while he's down there, he increasingly becomes aware because because the default state of everybody on Anaris, because it has to be, is that everyone trusts everyone and everyone is working together for the common good. Sure. And so he is not prepared to live in a society where there's like duplicitousness and distrust and ulterior motives. And so he he slowly comes to be more suspicious of the people who are putting him up. He starts to talk with some of the have-nots on Eurus and eventually almost inadvertently finds himself leading this general strike among like the working class. Okay. Which is which is gunned down aggressively by Ooh. by the government. Okay. Um and like the people, none of the people he meets, even like the the have not have stuff quite as bad as like the worst possible version of of somebody of, of like a downtrodden person in a capitalist system. I think I've like if if you think about the argument that some people would make, where like even the lower even like the lowest lowest middle class people they like they oh you have a fridge and you have a tv and you have a phone like you have these yeah like the standard of living now is way better than 200 years ago or yeah right fluoride in your water you have these things that that the poor you know hundreds of years ago could not have imagined and so how bad can your thing possibly be yeah and that is not untrue but it also does not mean that the system is not deeply flawed and run by a few people who have more than everyone else. Like it doesn't mean those people aren't locked out of power. Yes. Sure. Yeah, cuz that stuff begets itself mm-hmm. as as we've been talking about. There's inertia behind most power of yeah. whatever. Yeah. And there's and and it's the the system on the system on Eurus is pretty like distressingly recognizable, honestly. Uh-oh. It, 
the only bit of it that I found to be exaggerated, but just a bit, was the sexism bit of it. Oh, it was exaggerated. Just a time. Um, so, uh, Shavek has been to some parties and he notices that there are women there, but they are not like professors or anything. Like they're not physicists like him. Cause on Anari's anyone does pretty much any job. Like, and, and if you are actively carrying a child, like you get active, you get like more food rations or whatever, just to, to account for that reality. But then you have your child and then you can go back to work if you want. Like people have careers, Everyone can do all the same jobs if they really well, want. Well, like, and I, I imagine on Inari's like labor from a birth standpoint is even more recognizable as labor from a work standpoint because there's a it it would be thought of as a communal need to have more people to grow up and grow stuff or sure. build stuff. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I mean again, like population is not strictly referenced. It's not it's not like the people on Inari is just like there aren't enough of them to do everything. No, 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 no. But but yeah, no, that's definitely not. That's not not a good thought to to have. Um, <laughs> I was trying to put it in a way it didn't sound condescending, and I did bad. I did a bad job. You backed into it though. <laughs> um, and someone someone tells him there are some female teachers in the girls' schools, of course, but they never get past certificate level. Why not? Can't do the math. No head for abstract thought. Don't belong. You know how it is. What women call thinking is done with the uterus. Of course, there's always a few exceptions. God-awful brainy women with vaginal atrophy. You Adonians let women study science? Oe inquired. Well, they are in the sciences, yes. Not many, I hope. Well, about half. I've always said, said Pei, that girl technicians properly handled could take a good deal of the load off the men in any laboratory situation. They're actually defter and quicker than men at repetitive tasks and more docile, less easily bored. We could free men for original work much sooner if we use women. Not in my lab, you won't, <laughs> says another one. <laughs> oh my and it's gosh. Just, it's bad. Yeah. Good on her. That's man, and even like when when Shavak is talking to to a woman on Uris, she is like, "Oh, that if the women on Aris could just like put their feet up and shave all their hair off and 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 live a life of ease and and subtly control the men behind the scenes, you know, they'd be happier." So the no. way we're doing it is actually the right way, and it's that it is that countered feminist argument, I guess about about women running the men or something. And so that that's the power that women have is to. Yeah. Okay. Which I don't, I don't buy. No, but it, it is. I think the way to ha- let women run things is to let to women run things. Just let them do the things just they want to do. Just let them do the thing. Um, yeah. Okay. But you said that that on paper felt just a little bit more cartoonish, you know, your quote as an example than some of the other stuff, even though I, there's plenty of, fiction that has explored this and and it certainly is is not a cartoonish issue yeah but right? no like all the all the stuff about the oppressed underclass of of Eurus, like rising up and and fighting the oppressors and getting then getting gunned down like that is not that's not science fiction my dude that's just that is not nope doesn't nope that's just what it is and so i have i in general have less to say about Eurus except woof that it is kind of an earth stand-in sure. so we have like more contrast to draw with with anaris i think it was probably intended to be an exaggerated version of of earth at the time yeah that, that would make sense but it's gotten maybe less so with with age i don't know i don't want to ascribe anything to Le Guin. i'm just bringing my own stuff to this obviously sure. but um um well so do you want to talk about like how it wraps up do you want to talk about the two kind of worlds in comparison to each other how you want to how do you want to send well, us to, home to, here? i mean there there are a few different symbols and phrases that Le Guin comes back to again and again like there's there's something she says about um about you know if you're if you're gonna have if you're gonna go on a journey like it needs to include a return okay or else it's you know it's 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 nothing. Uh, the Adonians who left Eurus had been wrong, wrong in their desperate courage to deny their history, to forego the possibility of return. The explorer who will not come back or send back his ships to tell his tale is not an explorer, only an adventurer, and his sons are born in exile. 
Hmm. And so the uh, the Eurus is not thrilled with Chevek and the stuff that he's gotten up to <laughs> while he's been on the planet. And Chevek realizes, hey, I don't want to. I don't want to give this technology to to Eurus. Like I don't want because I know they're just going to use it to like press their advantage against the Hainish and the Terrans and, and people on Inaris and it's just going to go bad for everybody. And so he goes to the Terran embassy on Eurus, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Terra, Terra is earth in okay. this book yep. in case that wasn't clear. And because he knows the Terrans and the Hainish have, have a good working relationship. He says, I have this I have this theory of whatever that's going to make communication between planets super great. And I want to give it to you and the Hainish because the Hainish are known for sharing stuff widely and sort of giving stuff to everyone. So I want to I want to give it to someone who's going to give it to everyone so nobody can use it to to do really really bad stuff. <laughs> Like I just I I know what can happen when planets can communicate freely with each other and understand each other better, and I want this to be used for that and not for the bad thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and so he does that, and then the Terrans and the Hanish like help him get back to Anaris, and we don't find out if people on Anaris are like super jazzed that he's back, but it is implied that you know the group that he was a part of has been gathering more support while he's been gone. Like the, I think the, the, the anarchists within this anarchist government (laughs) are more accurately like reflecting Odonian ideals and, and people are coming around to that. But, but the book ends before he can actually set foot back on the planet. I reckon that would be a thing that not unlike elements of capitalism, right? would probably go in cycles where you would you would have this anarchist collective that separates away from an existing power structure. It's like, we're going to do things different. Here are all things that we do different. And then, like, for 30 years, those people will be in charge of doing things different, <laughs> such that when new people show up, they don't want to do things different anymore. They want to do it the way they did it. They want their coffee their way. Well, because, I, I mean, I think you, you see this with all kinds of... I think this actually is part of why like anti-vax people are a thing or oh, why, sure. like raw water is a thing. Like you have a generation of people who grow up completely unaware of what the world was actually like before these advances came about. Yeah, sure. And so they, they can say, oh, you know, people existed for thousands of years before we developed these things and they were fine. And actually, hey, you know, they weren't fine. Like people died of <laughs> smallpox and stuff like all the time. Yeah. Um, and that that's a thing that I struggle with as as a human and the way I think about the world is like, yeah, me too. Like we we don't have direct experience of anything beyond what happened like thirty years ago, yeah. and so we are. I mean that that is part of why history is doomed to repeat itself is because the lesson lessons learned only like, last so long. Only last for as long as human memory lasts, and and you can try and try and internalize things that that you've learned so they don't happen again and i think to 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 some extent people have been successful in that in the last like couple hundred years but so, yeah it's 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 hard like we we insist on relearning this stuff over and over again and i think that's another thing that Gwyn is getting at is is these odonians like they they learn all the, all of Odo's teachings and they, they have it down, they can recite it and whatever, but they've stopped like critically interacting with it. And mm, that has mm-hmm. contributed to a sort of, of not quite rot, but a sort of a weakening of, of the system. And if it were allowed to go on for long enough, it would become like instability and, and things would just stop working as they were intended to, I think. Yeah. Like what is the, the right balance? And sh- I know that she's, her what i've read about her talking about uh the about her being Dao- leguin yeah her being leguin sorry about like Taoist teachings and whatnot she's very interested in balance and i think it's kind of neat that this book is set up as two planets that have their own good and bad things going on but like 
just from the perspective of establishment thinking versus you know anarchist anti-establishment thinking it sounds like this book does a pretty good job of of examining where that inherent tension right where like you need you want expertise to build up and you want people to learn from what has happened before and you want people at least me maybe i'm i should say i want rather than you want but you like you want there to be a build up of of progress and but then yet, like the the flip side of expertise is like entrenched yes entrenched group thing yeah. yeah um or you know that's also where uh general bigotry and depression or or whatever you know whatever way oppression is expressing itself can kind of become institutionalized so you you need mechanisms for breaking that apart hmm sounds hmm. like there are no good answers <laughs> it sounds like Everything is hard and sucks. Oh, cool. Um, um I, I don't know that I've done every every concept in this book total justice when I've been talking about it, but sure, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought that the way Le Guin explored the disparities between these two societies and used them to to comment on each other, like like lest I make Eurus sound like some kind of hellscape where nobody could be happy. Shevek is just, he is astounded by the vegetation and the animals. And mm. like the first time there's a really heavy snow, like that's just not a thing that happens on Anaris. And like there are good things there. Yeah. He's just, he's amazed by this planet and it's bounties and you start to wonder, you know, what, how did these people, what do these people do to deserve this? But there's this whole, there's this whole thing about, in Odonianism, about, like, what does it mean to, like, deserve something? Oh, and, like, yeah. who decides, like, who deserves something and who needs something and whatever. Like, it, it, it's... It's complicated, but I, I super enjoyed this book. There are lots of good turns of phrase in it that i love like there's um and people on anaris are seeing shivek off let's say Um, sure and and there's this line that just says if the foreman had no experience in bossing a mob they had no experience in being one just talking about how people on anaris are not equipped to be a big group of angry people Yeah, okay. They did not expect commands to be arbitrary, so they had no practice in disobeying them. Their inexperience saved the passenger's life. Whoa. (laughs) Um, There's a line. It was very late when they realized it was late, which describes like every Saturday night I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Le Guin knows what's up. Le Guin is is great. It is truly sad that she's that she's passed away but she has this huge body of work that you absolutely should go check out um yeah i would love to do some earthsy stuff cool on the on the show so i think that's going to be your your bag because yeah that, that'll it bounce already, it out that'll bounce it out yeah um if we did not uh mention your favorite thing uh you the listener about uh Le Guin, hit us up uh, on email at overduepod at gmail.com or social media, that's facebook.com slash overduepod and twitter.com slash overduepod. A bunch of folks reached out over the past week, mostly about Hawaiian pizza. Um, so I want to thank uh, Adam, Tanner, Dion. I got Dion, exactly what I wanted. Steven, Teresa, Gloria, Nikki, Dana, Britt, R.A., Bernadette, Rebecca, Julia, Emily, Asma, Stacy, Eric, Elise, Jocko, and many more. We got some nice uh, notes about Salman Rushdie, but... A lot of folks want to talk about Hawaiian pizza. Hawaiian pizza. I haven't pizza done a tally. Trash. It seems pretty split. I'll just say, and we'll it move does, on. It does seem split, but I think that the Electoral College would give the win to. Pineapple I think, pizza like, being maybe, bad. like, you could just take your pizza preferences to a, the planet where it's harder to live, and I'll stay <laughs> on the planet <laughs> with all the cool Hawaiian pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, li- listen. Realistically, the answer is just eat the pizza that you like, 
and whatever. But, but I have I've to expressed be, a preference for I'd, pizza. Now I I'd, own it. I try to live a life where I create a lot of room for people to be whatever they are. And in this one area, because it doesn't actually hurt anybody, I am sure. drawing a hard line in the sand. And if you cross it, I will give you such a stink eye. Great. If folks want to know more about our book podcast, where should they go? They can go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. We have links to iTunes, Google Play, and RSS. You can use those to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out every Monday. We also have uh, links to HeadGum, our podcast network. We have a link to our Patreon project, which is patreon.com slash overduepod. It's a way to support us financially if you like the work that we're doing, and why wouldn't you? Um, and we also have a new listener page, which we need to update with a yeah. new batch of episodes. Um, but if you're trying to introduce a new listener to the show, I mean, one thing that I hear people doing a lot is just finding a book that you like and starting there. But if if people are book agnostic, those are episodes that we're particularly proud of that yeah. you can that you can share around. Two quick programming notes. Uh, next week, I'm reading Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. Uh, and we had planned to do a bonus episode here in January, but schedules got a little tight. So we're going to shift our odd numbered month bonus episode schedule to an even numbered month bonus episode schedule, which like in practice was how it was going anyway. Yes. So, <laughs> so like, realistically, things aren't going to change. We're just going to stop lying to you about when we're doing about, bonus episodes. Yeah, consider that the hopefully the last lie. Um, Patreon folks should be getting a message about that by the time this recording goes out. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Uh, we will see you next week. And until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.